Welcome back to the Unspaced Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 91, Clinical Innovation in Rheumatology, Past, Present, and Future. Now, today we'll be doing something a little bit different. Uh, I want to take a quick break and interview two of my favorite people in rheumatology who have recently written a book. It actually coincided nicely with something I've been doing a lot lately, which is thinking about the future of rheumatology, where we're going, what we're going to be doing, how we're going to get there. And when uh, Jason reached out to me to say that he was interested in chatting about his book on the podcast, I jumped at the opportunity because I thought it'd be kind of an interesting opportunity to cover some of the things that I've been thinking about and that these folks have been commissioning people to write about. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guests for today's podcast. Uh, Jason, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Dr. Jason Leibowitz. I'm a rheumatologist with the Skylands Medical Group and a part-time clinical preceptor at Johns Hopkins. Excellent. And um, Phil, would you like to introduce yourself as well? Sure. Uh, my name is Phil Cio. I am an associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, and I'm the physician editor for rheumatology at UpToDate. Awesome. Great. Well, I'm very grateful to have both of you all here. Uh, I've long followed both of your work and um, very much enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to chatting about your book today. Um, now, what you guys didn't know is that you um, this isn't a softball interview, so I'm going to hold your feet to the fire and uh, really try and get some uh, interesting tidbits out of this book. So let's dive right in. Um, Phil, I'm going to put you on the hot seat first, and I'm going to start with a very basic question, which is uh, why write a book these days? Um, you know, everyone's on the TikToks and the Twitters and, you know, books are, I wouldn't say anachronistic, but uh, what was your motivation and what do you think this one specifically will add? Sure. So when I was in training, uh, the journal of record was medicine, which definitely looks different now than it did at the time. But at the time, the way it was distinguished was they gave you as much space to talk about as much as you wanted to. So there wasn't the typical word limit that you get when you submit an article to say the New England Journal of Medicine. You were just given as much space as you needed to say what you thought needed to be said. And because of that, they published a lot of articles that were really the authoritative articles in their fields, like classic studies and arthritis and sarcoidosis and other fields like that. And then, as you said, we've sort of evolved over the years. So now people are reading on their smartphones and they're reading tweets that might give you a full couple of sentences or maybe Instagram posts that gives you up to a paragraph. And we want to get back to the idea of giving people enough space to actually explore everything that they found interesting in a topic and really talk about what they thought was the most important. Yeah, I love that. And I think that that came out in uh, reading the book. I have, in fact, read the book. It's been the project of mine for the past couple of weeks. And it's very, very good. I should say that. And I should have said it up front. I really enjoyed it. But, um, you know, so something that a lot of folks don't know is that textbooks like this aren't necessarily written by the two people who are the main authors. I mean, they they bring in experts in various fields to share their, their insights. And I did feel like you gave a lot of latitude to folks. They kind of were able to pursue their passions and talk about their specific areas, which I, I enjoyed. I, I felt like I got a good flavor. And some of the people that I recognized, I kind of chuckled when I saw them talking about things that I knew they they were particularly engaged in. Um, and so, and actually kind of on that note, Phil, just to stay with you on this question. So what do you think this book adds over the textbooks that are currently available? Because I know there's a number of other offerings in rheumatology. Yeah, absolutely. I think that most textbooks look back. I think they tell you what's been well-established. And because of that, they're a little bit timid. Uh, they talk about the randomized clinical trials that have been analyzed and reanalyzed because they don't want to actually venture and possibly say something that might not be 100% correct. Uh, I think what we tried to do in this book is we gave people enough breathing room so that they were able to say what they actually thought and where they thought the field might look like in the next, say, five or 10 years. 
I love that. I love that in particular because I've been accused of calling rheumatologists timid before because I have. Um, because I think that we need to be bolder in, in some of our treatment uh, approaches and in some of the way we design trials and do studies. So uh, I like that. And I do think that it was a bold book. You put a lot of, uh, put your nickel down on a lot of topics, which I appreciated. Uh, so jumping over to Jason. Jason, um, why don't you tell me a little bit about how you decided to uh, include diseases, find experts? What kind of got thing? How did things get onto the chopping block, and um, how did they not? And uh, I was curious to see how you picked the topics. Absolutely. So you know, for this book, um, we really in the main question that we asked people to consider as authors was, what do you think the future of rheumatology will look like? in the next 5, 10, 20, and even 30 years from now. So really speculative, but based on you know the cutting edge research that's going on right now. In terms of the topics that we selected, we all love rheumatology because it's an expansive field that ca- crosses every field of medicine. So we couldn't include everything. I think in our discussions, you pointed out sarcoidosis might have been a nice topic to consider. Could have even had a whole chapter on the interplay between gastroenterology and rheumatology in terms of emphysitis associated arthritis or other uh, cross specialty type topics. But I think we tried to select some of the main conditions that most rheumatologists have or will come into contact with on a fairly regular basis. And we really sought authors who I would we would consider our thought leaders across the country and the world uh, on, on these diseases, um, either themselves having done some of the pioneering research or um, the people who are writing and thinking the most about what the future will look like for each of these topics. And I have to say, we are extremely honored and lucky that the group of authors who contributed um, are extremely diverse from both a uh, national and international background, different levels of training and seniority. Um, And we really got some of the main people when you think of a certain disease, you think of these authors as the authority on that disease. Uh, And I think they found it a, hopefully a fun exercise uh, to, to to really prognosticate and uh, be creative about what they think the future will hold for rheumatology. Yeah, I thought you guys did a good job of that. I mean, a lot of the folks were the usual suspects, but some of them were sort of new new arrivals on the scene. And so it was nice not to just see a bunch of uh, uh, older established folks. Some of the some of the, some, some of the newer people were great to read from. So I think you guys I think it struck a nice nice balance. And you know, at some point you can't. You can't include everything, but I would give a particular bid for sarcoidosis in the next edition because it's kind of a passion project of mine, making people care more about sarcoidosis right now. <laughs> All right. Uh, putting, uh, going back to Phil, I had a question for you as well. Something that is currently part of our present, um, and I imagine will be of our future to some degree, which is COVID-19. And y'all slipped the chapter in at the very end there, which I think is appropriate given what we're going through. It'd be hard not to talk about it. Um, you know, but they, the, the chapter was sort of about COVID-19 and MISC in particular, uh, which I think are certainly important topics. But the one that has interested me the most lately, and the thing that I keep thinking about, is how rheumatologists are going to interact with long COVID. Uh, I think there's a lot of interest in that from an academic perspective. I know there's a lot of folks doing scholarship in that area. But from a clinical perspective, where what is the role of the rheumatologist in long COVID? And I don't know if this is necessarily covered in your book, but I'm curious to hear you talk about it. Phil, Phil what are your thoughts? No, I think that's a great question, because I think at the end of the day, it's probably the rheumatologists are going to have to be the ones who figure out long COVID. I think for the same reason that we're also the physicians that take care of patients with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and fibromyalgia, not necessarily because they fit neatly in our specialty, because at the end of the day, you need someone who actually is used to taking a history and physical. 
you need someone who's used to thinking about people in terms of multiple organ involvement and people who are used to thinking creatively about their patients. And I don't think that really describes geneticists or any of the other possible physicians who could take a, a step forward when it comes to looking at long COVID sort of in, a, in, in terms of treatment. Uh, I think that in the future, that long COVID and the interest in long COVID in particular is going to be a great boon for us because it's really going to help us explore not only the etiology of diseases like long COVID and maybe chronic Lyme and fibromyalgia, but also patients who have what the lupus groups are now calling the type B symptoms, the symptoms that aren't going to respond to immunosuppression, but are still an important part of rheumatic disease. Yeah, I think that's very well put. Um, you know, if I were to say if there's some enduring legacy of long COVID that I think would be a, a, a silver lining would be that I think it's put these sort of symptoms front and center. Um, you know, I, I think that fibromyalgia has long been under-recognized, under-appreciated, and sort of, uh, uh, I think that hopefully recognizing this in, this in the context of COVID will sort of inspire people to crack that egg a little better than we have in the past. Uh, all right. And then Jason, um, kind of sticking with the theme of future themes. So this was my favorite part of the book, reading what people think is coming next. There's one I got a bone to pick with you about. All right. And that's precision medicine. Now I I've been on that bandwagon. I, I think that it's kind of the Holy grail to find a way to specifically give the right person, the right treatment at the right time. And, you know, it's, it's obviously very appealing, but it's kind of like the future. That's always the future uh, in my opinion right now. So putting you on the spot, are we, are we ever going to do precision me uh, medicine? Is it going to happen in our lifetimes or 30 years from now, have you seen a patient and I'm going to say, you know, you should try some methotrexate for your rheumatoid arthritis. Like where are we going to be? <laughs> Well, Phil always accuses me of being a starry-eyed optimist, but I think even with that background, uh, admittedly in mind, I I am uh, hopeful and truly optimistic that within our lifetimes we'll see precision medicine, and it may look different um, and maybe not complete uh, completely like we envision right now. I I think um, a big difference that makes us hopeful now is the explosion of big data and data analytics and the ability to look at huge data sets and a huge amount of information um, in a, you know, uh, a systematic and efficient way. Um, I was actually just reading an article about quantum computing. And if that becomes a reality in our lifetime, I think this would be even further accelerated. But I think the idea of, you know, transcriptomics, proteomics, genomics, metabolomics, I think these are all very, uh, new concepts that are very feasible, certainly in terms of research that's being done right now, and truly have the ability, hopefully in the next several decades, to advance us to that level that you're talking about, where we can truly um, think about uh, identifying subsets of disease, uh, treating patients much more specifically for their subset of disease. I think one of the first things that we'll see, and a lot of the authors in the textbook talked about this, is that in clinical trials, instead of a lupus trial, you know, uh, which may have been the way that TULIP-1 was initially thought of, separating out, you know, interferon signatures and, and subdividing patients to better understand, well, which patients would benefit from this potential treatment. Or even we do see, you know, in scleroderma and myositis in those chapters, the authors describe how distinct the clinical phenotypes and prognosis is associated with different scleroderma-specific antibodies or myositis-specific antibodies. So I think we're already starting to see how we can tease out subgroups within disease categories. And then finally, I, I think that there's you know, significant investment 
um, towards precision medicine, I think of the Accelerating Medicines Partnership and the work that's being done in things like um, uh, you know, single cell RNA sequencing and lupus, um, synovial tissue biopsy and rheumatoid arthritis. I think not only do we have the tools that will make these um, ideas possible in the future, but I think that there's enough resources, funding, time and attention being paid to this uh, that we hopefully will see a substantial amount of precision medicine beyond what we can achieve today in our, within our lifetimes. All right. I think you split the difference on how I feel about this. Uh, for the record, I don't think interference signatures are useful at all <laughs> in deciding treatments for lupus. But but uh, if we're going to define precision medicine as um, identifying subgroups within the diseases that we already have, I think that's a very uh, plausible, starry-eyed, optimist take on what precision medicine medicine could be. And I'm, I'm actually hopeful about that as well. I think some of the things that have already happened in my lifetime, including Vexus and Dada too, are actually quite interesting. And they're, they're true advances in understanding diseases and hopefully therapeutics. And Dada too, that's already kind of come to fruition with TNF inhibition. So, uh, all right, I'll give you a pass on that one. I think that was a good, you covered covered very well the, with a brief divergence into anaphrolimab. Um <laughs> <laughs> so, Phil, another one that came across a lot to me on the sort of future of rheumatology theme, a lot of the authors talked about catching more disease, catching it sooner, intervening earlier, and um, a lot of topics along those lines, like things like whole body MRI came up in the Axe Spa chapter, wearable trackers, um, early intervention in a bunch of different areas, uh, various phenotypes of disease we already have. I think all that's very great. And I think we've all seen patients who have obviously progressed and you say to yourself, I really wish I could have gotten here sooner. But the flip side of that also worries me, which is overdiagnosis, overtreatment. And I think we're starting to flirt with that in a lot of areas. So, so Phil, what are your thoughts on the current state of rheumatology? Are we overtreating, undertreating? And how great is the risk of waltzing into giving a bunch of immunotherapy to people who don't necessarily need it if we expand the, expand the pipeline here? Yeah, so I absolutely agree that we are verging very close to the point where uh, overtreatment is a real concern. Uh, you think about like the discussion of very early rheumatoid arthritis that took place in the most recent ACR convergence meeting. And the idea is that you could certainly help some patients, but how many people would you have to treat with a drug like rituximab in order for a handful of people to benefit? So it's a real concern. Uh, as for clinically right now, I tell all my patients that I overtreat everyone. And it's because that's how the standard of care evolved, that we overtreat everyone to make sure that we catch everyone so that no one fails therapy. And I think that in the future, what we're going to be able to do is just subset patients in a better fashion, probably using molecular markers that don't exist yet or other phenotypes that hopefully will be developed in the next uh, 10, 10 or 20 years, maybe by people like you. But uh, I think that we just have to get better in figuring out not only who needs therapy, but who doesn't need therapy. The people that can be safely tapered off of agents, the patients who can be uh, treated with limited courses of relatively uh, safer forms of immunosuppression. I really think that's the frontier for the next generation. It's funny. I actually tell my patients that I undertreat everyone except for you because uh, <laughs> we're going to. <laughs> because I think that I am habitually conservative about my treatment approaches. Um, but then when I see someone I want to treat, I'm very aggressive about it. So <laughs> I got to convince them that I'm not a crazy. Uh, that was interesting. Interesting thoughts though, Phil. Uh, all right, Jason, last, last big question for you. Um, you know, in the past few months, we've seen a lot about CAR-T. So CAR-T arrived in, for lupus in nature with a 
questionable series of five patients that I don't entirely believe. Um, but then there's a really interesting plenary that I loved at ACR about a uh, CAR T therapies and antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. And it, it was not yet in human trials, but I do see as that being a potential future of rheumatology question. A friend of mine has been texting me thinking that our field might disappear, that soon the oncologist will be curing all of the rheumatic diseases. Um, I, you know, I'm a little skeptical, but I do think that that is a, an important futuristic topic topic that, um, you know, admittedly didn't make the cut because it hadn't arrived yet. So curious to hear your thoughts, one on um, futures that we can't yet envision and two uh, on thoughts, plans to update the book or how to incorporate things like that when you're talking about the future. Oh, it's a great question. I, I went back and in the lupus chapter, they did use one uh, car T that, that phrase of research for it. There's one mention of it. So it got in there. They, they did. Uh, I, I actually control search for it. <laughs> <laughs> and you're right. Max Koenig uh, from Hopkins did, uh, gave an amazing plenary session presentation, uh, ACR convergence about his work in this field, which is even more exciting with specific targeting of, you know, just portions of B cell populations, not just uh, the entire B cell population. So yeah, I, you know, the, your initial question was a great one about writing a textbook in 2022. Uh, one of the things you can't account for is the rapidity with which things are changing. And even how we look at the next decade in our field could be different in December than it was in the January of that year. So certainly in this book and, and other textbooks, it's always hard to capture the late breaking and, and most relevant uh, issues that change over time. I think the authors did a very good job in in speaking to general themes, certainly, um, like you were talking about wearable technologies, development of new biomarkers, better um, uh, uh, measures of disease activity and outcomes, patient reported outcomes. So I think those concepts still stand up and what that might look like in detail will change over time, as will some of the technologies that we use. Um, but you know, one, if we wanted to look to the future of this textbook, perhaps it should be a living document, uh, which could be <laughs> editable uh, and uh, continually evolving as we learn new things and see great presentations, abstracts, and publications that really change how we, we think about things. One of the chapters in this book is about immune-related ad adverse events from cancer immunotherapy. And what's amazing to me is that literally, if you tried to write this book a decade ago, that wouldn't have even been a topic. It didn't exist. We've seen the development of a whole new category, really, of diseases um, that have grown out as collateral damage of a very successful treatment in the oncology world. So medicine is unpredictable. Uh, it's exciting. I think that's why we enjoy practicing it. That's why we want to have great researchers like you and the authors in these, of these chapters to continue to advance the field. Um, because certainly things can change on a dime. I think that's a great place to to end. I, I, I want to emphasize again that I think it was bold to commission a bunch of folks to talk about the future of rheumatology. And uh, I thought it was a great book for that reason. It's not something that you often see in textbooks because you're right. They do mostly look backwards. And some of the questions that interest me the most are looking forwards. Where are we going? And what are we going to do? And I think a note of humility about what 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 is to come is, is a, very, a very good place to end. So um, thank you to both of you for coming on the podcast. Um, thank you for having us. 
Yeah, it's been great getting to talk to you. Um, the book, again, is Clinical Innovation in Rheumatology, Past, Present, and Future. I very much enjoyed reading it. I recommend that everyone who's listening go out and grab yourself a copy or convince your division to buy a couple. Uh, and I think that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, uh, be sure to share the podcast with friends and have a great week. <laughs>